So today, um, I get to share about our third core value, and I'm really excited about it. Jake asked me to talk about it because I don't stop talking about it. And um, so the third value is the people are most important, the table is how we gather, and the invitation is extended, actively extended to those who aren't here yet. So that's the third core value of Kingdom Community. Um, the reason why I can't stop talking about this is that most of my, no, excuse me, a couple of my closest long-term friends are not believers. Uh, maybe they were hurt by um, something in their past that had to do with church, or they just found it to not have, um, it was really bankrupt for them. And so I'm always thinking about how our message here at Kingdom Community, actually anything that I do, I'm always thinking about how this filters through their lens of unbelief, through pain, through suspicion. Um, it's just really important to me. And so that's why here at Kingdom Community, we just spend a lot of time talking about what are we doing, why are we doing it, and how are we communicating it, because it's really that important. So I'm not a, theo um, a theologian. I do have a minor in biblical studies, but my trade is that I'm a counselor. And so I tend to read the story of God through the lens of relationships and what God is wanting to communicate through his words and his actions. And so tonight I'm just going to share a little bit of my story and how God communicated to me through some of my experiences and through his love letter, which is his Bible. So you guys get to listen to my high school drama. You ready? I'm glad we have high school students in the room. Very nice. Notice that I did, did end up in a career where I focus all my time and energy on teenagers. <laughs> this is why. So the summer before my freshman year of high school, I went to a conference where a woman shared a really simple message. She said, wherever you are is your area of influence and where God gets to reveal his kindness through you to others. So she's talking to a bunch of high school kids. Some of them are on the football team. Maybe they're on the debate team. They have different um, friends in different classes. The idea is wherever you are, that is your area of influence and display the love of God, like display his kindness. So I, was, I thought, yes, that's going to be me. And little did I know that that mission to radiate God's love in my surroundings would actually change my world too. So to be honest, my first semester of my freshman year was a complete train wreck. I was a part of a school team. They started a week or two before school started. And it was uh, like all grades, so I was the youngest. I was a really dumb eighth grader <laughs> coming into high school. Um, and this team had a really questionable reputation. Most of them were all doing or selling drugs. Some of them had guns in the back of their car. They partied. They were all hanging out and sleeping around the same people. It was just kind of a big mess. Um, if my mom had known that, she probably wouldn't have wanted me to join that team. Um, parents didn't know those type of stories, right? So anyway, I was introduced to this crazy world, and I made all the wrong choices for all of the wrong um, reasons, and I got hurt, and I got burned. And in fact, I harmed others in the wake of my really idiotic choices. So if I was to get a grade for sharing the love of God as a freshman, I would get a big F, or I would be kicked out of school. I can remember having lost all of my new friends and my reputation by New Year's Eve. So I didn't make it that long. I just really messed up everything. 
So that night, on New Year's Eve, I made a resolution that if anyone from my high school was going to talk about me, it was going to be because of the kindness of God, which was the original mission, and not who I was dating or the rumor that they heard. And it was through this horrific mess that I had made in my life that I learned about God's actual kindness, his love, and his grace for me. So here I was going, it was almost like I was going to sell travel brochures about this amazing, kind God, but it was a place I had never really been to until these moments. So um, I continued to learn, honestly, I continue to learn about God's grace today because I'm human and I continue to make messes on a regular basis. So this is an active lesson for me, but it really um, took shape during my freshman year. So New Year's Eve was definitely a turning point. The second half of my freshman year was very different and it was very lonely. And I would never want to go back to those days. But it was during this season that I learned about God's personal love for the brokenhearted and that he truly does have the ability to heal. Because I experienced it. During this season, I began to devour the Bible. I wanted to simply understand God's kindness, his grace, his forgiveness as much as possible. Honestly, I could not walk down the hall and keep my head up high without these love letters. Like, I had nothing left to give. It was, like, embarrassing just to go back to school. I needed that personal touch that he was giving me through his word. It was uh, through this process that I began to understand God's kindness, what it was really about. I was being changed by meeting God in the really difficult places in my life, and he was the agent of change. It was nothing else. So a lot changed over the next couple years. The more I learned about God's kindness, the more I wanted to share about him and practice his values at school and in these fragile relationships. So that doesn't mean I was walking around with like a banner or something. I just simply was, I had to earn people's right to even just be normal. <laughs> so it was just, I was learning that God provides some really powerful strategies in the area of repairing relationships. And I'm a marriage and family therapist. And some of these strategies that are found in the Bible, they are like the crux of what it takes in order to um, really have authentic forgiveness in relationships. So I was learning about that. I learned about seeking and offering forgiveness, making amends, and backing it up with a different way of living. I learned about being a person other people could trust and being a person that I could trust. And honestly, I still struggle with that just because the wounds were so deep during that season. Um, but this takes some, it took some time because trust takes time. It takes work. And I was still on this team with the same people that I had offended. So that was really fun. So repairing relationships and working through the awkward days um, following something really stupid is something I'm familiar with. <laughs> so when I'm hanging out with high school kids, I get it. <laughs> like, there's nothing they can say to me that would really shock me. I am with you, and um, it's going to be okay because I get it. By the end of my freshman year, relationships had actually somewhat been reformed, and my sophomore year consisted of people coming to me and asking for advice with their own relationships, which was really, really strange. So quite literally, I would say during that next year, God had done a 180 in my own life, and it was really unexplainable. So my junior year, I was asked to commit to a church leadership group that met the same night as this team that I practiced with, and I had to make a choice. So um, Jake wanted me to throw this in here. So if you hung around the church in the mid-90s, you would know that youth group was kind of a big deal, 
and the youth pastor was kind of like the rock star of the church, right? Did I say that right? There you go. Um, which is kind of annoying, <laughs> but that's how it was. So when I got asked to be on their leadership team, it, um, it was kind of a big deal. I, I got to be on the in crowd, so to speak. At least that's what it felt like from the outside. But when I opted out of being in the leadership, it was, it was a very strange response I got. So it was this sense of, well, you know, good Christian girls, they volunteer in the youth group. Like, that's what you do. You're now a leader in the youth group. That was the first kind of response I got. And the second response, it was, why? Like, why are you doing that? That seems strange. Um, now, we could go on mission trips and go to other countries and help other people, but that was, that was cool. But to spend time investing in your own school, that just didn't make sense. That was, like, weird. And so maybe I was misreading the cues. Honestly, I may have been misreading the cues because I was honestly kind of dumb. But what I know for sure is that there was no encouragement from the leadership of my church to keep investing outside the church, and I was very alone. Like, that's awesome. You go do that. I don't know why. And you can come back here on Sunday mornings or whatever. Like, it was just okay. So, and that was okay with me. Honestly, that was very okay with me. So by my senior year, I can say that the kindness of God was transforming a lot of people around me. The team I was on that had had that questionable reputation my freshman year had changed. In fact, it had grown and it now attracted people from other sports and extracurricular, extracurricular activities. So we had cheerleaders and drama kids and kids from debate and kids from soccer. They all came together on this team and we really began to enjoy each other versus bicker, fight, compete against each other. Some of the team members would go with me to youth group. Um, a couple, one of them went with me on a trip um, out of the country. A couple of them met with me every week just to meet and talk about God. Like one of them was a foreign exchange student from Switzerland. I mean, it just was a really unique time in my life. Not everyone chose to follow Jesus, but it was God's kindness and his message that changed the world as we knew it. It was surprising then, and it, it's surprising now. As I look back, there are some tangible examples where I can really say, I know that this impacted other people. Uh, the first one is just that there's different girls from that time in my life. I call them girls because they'll forever be in high school to me. But we still keep in contact over Facebook and even the ones that are in other countries. And, um, and they just share about what God's doing in their life or the challenges that they're facing or just prayer requests. So that, that is kind of exciting that some of these things really took root over the long period of time. Another reason I know that this season mattered was there was a specific person that did actually really hurt me during my freshman year. And when that person, when they had their own understanding of God's grace for themselves, actually called to apologize. And that was a teenager. Like, that does not happen. Teenagers do not apologize. <laughs> that is just weird. And so as I look back, I think God was really doing something that was abnormal. Because I didn't, I didn't deserve, I didn't need that, but it was a gift given to me. And then there was an ex-boyfriend, and that was the person that I harmed the most during my freshman fiasco. Um, he actually called me 10 years later. He had gotten really, really sick, and he said that he almost died in this whatever was happening. And he said that he was awoken in a dream and he, had ha he heard the voice of God. 
And he said that the voice told him that God was real because God was love and love was real. And, um, but he needed to know if this was true. Like, this was important to him. And he found my phone number, and he called me, and he started off saying that I was the only person that he'd ever known that really, that knew God. And I thought, oh, that's bad. Because I'm like the one person that, I wouldn't, you know, like, I ruined it for you. But however, I think about the amends that I took, the, the steps that I took to say I'm sorry, and then the process that I went through over the next three and a half years. So somehow in that process of making amends and diving deeper into this relationship with God, even the wounded could see evidence of this bigger God. So why do I share this? As I got to know the people on my team, I learned about their stories. So parents were in jail from selling drugs. In fact, literally the first week that I showed up, one of the houses was surrounded with um, caution tape and a girl to break into her house to get her clothes. CPS had been involved in some of these um, peers' homes. There was child abuse, substance abuse, poverty. A parent had committed suicide. Um, there were negative peer relationships, alternative lifestyles, academic struggles. I mean, the list just goes on and on. I, seriously, if my mom had known the group she was putting me in with, she probably would not have chosen this group. Um, but these had become my people. They mattered to me and they matter still. They were hurting and broken and lonely as I was hurting, broken, and lonely. I, can't, I can hardly explain it, but the deeper I grew in relationship with my peers at school, the more I learned about God's love for them and the more I learned about his love for me. I was forced to understand how to find hope and how to find meaning and how to articulate God's grace in the absence of hope, which I really think changed my life forever. Like, how do you actually say who Jesus is without using some language that you learned in church if you don't, if you didn't grow up in church? So if I could say that again, I had to learn how to articulate God's grace in the absence of hope when it was really needed. As I reflect on my decision to invest time outside of church versus time inside the church, I do believe that that was a defining moment in my spiritual journey. I was grateful for the truths I had learned about God inside the church, and I continue to. I am, like, I devour the Bible. I love it. But I can't deny the growth I experienced when practicing those truths outside the church in real relationships. So you guys, this is what God has been teaching us all the time. He's always been about this. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to Acts 10. And I kid you not, I read Acts 10 for the last two weeks over and over again. And I wrote this next section like 10 times. I did like a whole Old Testament survey and Jake said, you can't do that. You don't have five hours. So what I'm going to do it just had so much fun reading it and reading it and just seeing all the layers. But I'm just going to paraphrase and then pull out a couple pieces of scripture from Acts 10. Uh, okay, so here we go. Acts 10. So there is a story of two men who had a dream and they needed each other to explain it. So the story goes that there's this man named Cornelius. And Cornelius is a Roman and a commander in the Roman army. And the army was known for being ruthless, for ruthlessly oppressing any people and country that they conquered. And they were like the best at this, right? Naturally, a Roman commander like Cornelius would be considered an enemy of the Jewish people. 
Plus, anyone who was not a Jew was considered unclean or dirty or, like, there was a bias against Cornelius because he wasn't Jewish. However, in the first couple of verses, the author points out that this Cornelius, who really should have been, like, a, not a friend of the Jews, he, um, he actually seemed to have this understanding of this Jewish God. He prayed to their God. He cared for the Jewish people. They had respect for him. He wasn't a Jew, but he began to adopt their beliefs and practices. This was like kind of an, like just a strange situation. However, he had not encountered the story of Jesus, and so he has a dream. Now, on the opposite spectrum, you have Peter. He's the other character. Peter is a Jew. He's the leader of the small Jewish group who followed Jesus. And by Acts 10, this man has walked with Jesus. He's witnessed his miracles. He's gone from town to town sharing about how Jesus is this rescuer the Jews have been waiting for. In chapter 3, he literally heals the person and gives Jesus the credit. And then in chapter 4, he's arrested for healing the person because he gave Jesus the credit. And the people that, that arrested him... They, um, they, they were studying Peter, and they were confused. Like, how is this man doing all this? He's uneducated, he's untrained, and yet he speaks with authority. And they realized that he, they recognized him as having been with Jesus. Like, that's simply what set him apart. But these people really wanted to squash the story of Jesus and Jesus being God. Like, that, they didn't want that to happen. So they put him in jail. They let him out of jail, and literally the next chapter, he's raising a woman from the dead and, again, giving Jesus the credit. Like, this guy is pretty awesome. I love this guy, Peter. So now we go to chapter 10. Peter's exhausted from all this happening. He's hungry, and then he has this dream. So now we have these two people. So Cornelius has a dream where he's instructed to go meet Peter, and Peter has this really weird dream about meat. So this brings us to Acts chapter 10, 9 through 15. So Peter goes to the roof and he prays and he becomes really hungry and he has this vision of meat being lowered to him on a sheet with a voice that tells him to eat this meat. And three times Peter has this vision. Each time he's like, he says, no, no, I'm not going to eat the meat because I will never eat the meat nor have I ever eaten anything that's unclean or unpure. Like he is resisting this strange dream. To us it's strange. And in verse 15, the voice speaks to him again and says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Okay, so let's just back up. So to give some context of this weird dream about meat, the Jews were given really strict moral and physical purity laws. And this list is quite lengthy. So if you want to read it when you're trying to go to sleep, that's fun. <laughs> but part of this list included the type of meat you were allowed to eat, not allowed to eat, who you could socialize with, who you couldn't, and there's a lot more laws. So for Peter to get a vision telling him to eat this meat goes against all the purity laws. Like, this just doesn't make sense. And so in verse 17, while Peter is still very much confused as to what this dream means, Cornelius' friends arrive seeking to bring Peter back to Cornelius. So here again, you have two men. They both have these dreams, and they actually need each other to answer the dreams. And so he asks Peter, he says, God has asked you to come here to tell me something. What is it? And so at this point, Peter, he gets his answer to the dream. In verse 34 and 35, he says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. 
So Peter shares the whole story about how Jesus was this long-awaited rescuer. And in verse 43, he ends by giving Cornelius the opportunity to be a follower of Jesus too. He says that any, everyone who believes in Jesus' name receives forgiveness of sins. Another way of saying, all this was new to Peter. Now, it shouldn't have been surprising to him, because woven in scripture from the very beginning, this theme had always been there. All the way back in the very beginning of the Bible, God calls his people. In Genesis 12, so it's the very first introductory book in the Bible, um, the Lord says, I will make you, the Jewish people, into a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So he's saying, I want you to be a blessing. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And then he reaffirms this over and over again. And I will make you a light for the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And those are just a couple places. It's all throughout the Old Testament and over again. His story is for the people who aren't there yet. So in fact, in Acts 1, Jesus tells his followers, and Peter's standing right there. He says, you will be my witnesses and tell my story in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Peter's aha moment, like he gets it. He goes, oh my goodness, this story was always for everybody and I got to witness it. I mean, it took a weird dream about meat and all this stuff, but this, I mean, it's, this is a truly a big, this is a big moment in the story and how it's being shared. So he goes to the other um, leaders of this movement who are followers of Jesus and he shares with them what's happening. And they ha actually have to have this huge debate about whether they can include non-Jews. But Peter's experience could not be unchanged. He had seen that this was God's plan all along. And after this, the message was just contagious. The rest of the book of Acts consists of God's story being shared everywhere, literally all the nations. It just continues to spread, and it continues to spread today. This story is meant to be shared outside the church to all people groups, all nations, no matter how different a person is or how much they've suffered or what type of idiotic choices they've made, and I'm speaking for myself, no one is disqualified from this love of God. At 180, we get to participate in this mission daily. We've dedicated our lives to this mission. And it's not by accident that Jake and I have spent the better part of 20 years at 180. Jake was here. He started as the program director. I was the mentor. And then later, I volunteered as a counselor at Liberty High School. The students we were drawn to tended to be raw. We would later discover these students had emotional trauma, abuse, neglect, on top of some like not so great choices. <laughs> Some of these students have witnessed more in their 12 to 17 years of life than I will in my entire lifetime. They are resilient and strong and yet tired and weary when they really let you in. For me personally, I have found myself as a counselor working with both victims and perpetrators, children, teens, adults, those who face worries, fears, uncontrollable anger, substance abuse, depression, kids who have been involved in gangs, shootings, wearing ankle bracelets. They are in some ways my friend group from high school, or better yet, they are me in high school. And in my most, like in my worst moments, they are me today. I have felt the closest to God in the moments where people shed tears, share their grief, their disbelief, their anger, their shame. Bringing the non-judgmental tenderness of Jesus changes lives and brings healing, and I have seen it time and time again. These experiences have shaped the mission of 180, 
It has pushed our team to be available to people outside the typical walls of church. A couple examples, <laughs> a couple years ago, we had the teen center got broken into, and these kids, um, we caught them on our cameras. So at 4 a.m., Liz and I, in a stupor, made a Facebook post teasing the kids who broke into the teen center um, to steal candy, and then they dropped their weed on the way out. And we thought, well, that was kind of dumb, because the weed might have been more expensive than the candy you stole, and we had to get up at 4 in the morning. So we weren't very happy about that. But in our Facebook post, which did get thousands of views, I was saying millions, but I was wrong, <laughs> um, two things happened that day. Uh, the boys actually came and visited the teen center, not knowing that they had been caught. And so we pulled them in individually, because they didn't come together. They were wearing the same hoodie, I believe, as they were in the film. And we brought them into the back room, and we showed them the Facebook post, where we just like are laughing and teasing, but in a loving way. We incur in the video, we encouraged them to come back during normal business hours, and uh, not at 4 in the morning. And there may be some community service in that, but um, the whole idea was, we want you here, you're supposed to be here, come on back. And so we showed them the video, and then we did give them community service. Now, the second thing that happened was one of the moms stumbled upon our Facebook post that same day, and she called, just she was sobbing. And she, her son was couch surfing, the one that had broken in, and she was living in a different town and hadn't been able to get in contact with her son yet. But she just said, thank you. Thank you for being available for my son and for showing him the grace and this redemptive process that, I mean, really, who would have done that, you know? At 180, we take these relationships outside the church seriously. Jake started a live music venue with bands and fans who weren't religious. <laughs> we started a professional counseling center. We provide services on school campuses, partner with local law enforcement, take kids camping, move into high-crime neighborhoods, all with the stated purpose of building relationships and showing kindness of God. But if you ask our team members what their favorite part of 180 is, they will say our family dinner is hands down. This is no ordinary dinner. We invite ourselves over to people's homes, which is a little awkward. These students have, we've worked with them for quite some time, and we want to cultivate a deeper relationship. So we go to these people's, these students' homes. Typically, they have a different religion, nationality, ethnicity, lifestyle. We have the opportunity to affirm these kids to their parents, to point out the positive traits, um, just to demonstrate the kindness of God and build an authentic relationship with them. We trust that God will take that relationship where it needs to go. There is literally no agenda other than demonstrating the kindness of God. We might get a call in 10 years where someone is asking us to explain an element of God, or we might not. Our job is just to display this kindness to all the nations. So now you guys, this mentality that drives 180, we are really excited because this mentality is what is driving kingdom community. This is no longer a 180 staff or volunteer initiative. We are doing this together. There are so many exciting stories. During COVID, one of our team members was sharing a meal with one of their neighbors when they learned that this family had a need for a car. This couple shared about the immigrant family who needed this car with their kingdom community group. And within three months, a car was donated, and our team members are now teaching their neighbor how to drive, which I've heard can be a little scary. This generous act will change this person's life forever. She was seen, cared for, and loved. 
We have other people in Kingdom Community who are caring for others in their areas of influence and interest, helping people get jobs, hosting a group for young married families. We have people creating a private preschool. Another group is wanting to use their home to host single moms in, in need of housing. We have um, a whole realtor group helping people to find homes. We have prayer groups that are meeting throughout town. This is what Kingdom Community seeks to be about, seeing people in our community, our town, our families, as valuable and worthy of love. Peter thought there were limits to this love, but God proved him otherwise. At Kingdom Community, each one of us have experienced the tenderness of God. We wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be viewing this online format at if at some point you hadn't experienced the tenderness of God and wanted and experienced his healing and wanted to know more. We gather together to learn about Jesus and to be reminded of his goodness and his story so that we can continue to share his story of kindness with the people around us. Because of this value, we have created a very non-traditional church approach. We meet every other week as a large gathering for three reasons. The first is to learn about Jesus and to celebrate what he is doing every other week. So we come together and we celebrate who he is and what he's doing. The second is to give the off weeks a time for the kingdom community groups to meet. That is when we share meals with each other and we give encouragement. And that's when things get real because we're really processing what's really going on. And each group has reserved room to grow and multiply. All are invited. The third reason is to create space for us to invest in people's lives who aren't here yet. People from your work, your family, your neighbors, your neighbor's kids, whoever. I've seen too many people who are, well, I'm busy too, but busy doing more and more and more within the same church. Like, they don't have time for anybody outside of church. And we, on purpose, we're doing this differently. You need time in order to cultivate authentic relationships. So this was really intentional. As you can see at Kingdom Community, the people are the most important. The table is how we gather, and the invitation is actively extended to those who are not here yet. So I give you the same charge given to me my freshman year. Where is your area of influence, whether it's a job, a volunteer position, a class? Where do you spend your time? Where are your friends? And how can you reveal the kindness of God to those around you in your area of influence? Those conversations might not only bring hope to a friend, but change both of your lives in the process.